Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. Today's headline is Jury Finds Pritchard Guilty by Grace Neeland, Dateline, Maquoketa, Iowa. It took a Jackson County jury about an hour Tuesday to find an area man guilty of first-degree murder in the fatal 2022 shooting of his estranged wife. Christopher E. Pritchard, 58, of Bellevue, was charged in Iowa District Court of Jackson County with first-degree murder and first-degree robbery in the death of his wife, Angela Pritchard, 55. The jury Tuesday afternoon found Pritchard guilty on both counts after deliberating for almost exactly one hour. The trial began February 5th with two days of jury selection and testimony began February 7th. Jackson County Attorney John Keese called the verdict the only reasonable path toward truth and justice for Angela Pritchard, whom he described as a daughter, mother, and businesswoman. We're happy with the verdict, Keese told the Telegraph Herald. We think this was justice being served, and I just hope it gives Angela Pritchard's family a little bit of closure. Authorities found Angela Pritchard dead from an apparent gunshot wound the morning of October 8, 2022, at Mississippi Ridge Boarding Kennels, the business she operated near Bellevue. The couple was separated at the time of her death. Despite a protective order that banned him from contacting his wife in any way, evidence presented at the trial showed that Christopher Pritchard went to the kennels at about 4 a.m. on October 8, 2022, and waited there until Angela Pritchard arrived at 7.30 a.m. He had a shotgun with him, which he later told investigators had been used to hunt coyotes in the early morning hours before his arrival. Keese argued Christopher Pritchard instead brought the weapon with the intent to harm Angela Pritchard. That's a couple of hours to think about what he's going to do, Keese said in his closing statements. Every minute of every hour he made the decision that he was going to stay there and go through with the murder. The shooting also was captured on a 911 call made by Angela Pritchard in the moments before her death. A recording of that call was played at trial and included a woman's voice repeatedly asking a man she identifies as Chris to leave before the gunshot wound. Gunshot is heard. Evidence shown at trial indicated that Pritchard took his wife's purse in the wake of the shooting as well as her keys, credit cards, and several financial documents. He later was apprehended with some of these items at an area residence in the early morning hours of October 9, 2022. As part of the trial, prosecutors played clips from initial interviews between Christopher Pritchard and law enforcement in which he stated the shooting resulted from an accidental discharge of the shotgun and that he had not meant to harm his wife. A retired criminalist from the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation testified at trial, however, that upon examination, the gun had no mechanical issues that would have caused such a malfunction to occur. Attorneys for Christopher Pritchard declined to comment in the wake of the verdict, but defense attorney Miguel Puentes told jurors during closing arguments that law enforcement too quickly zeroed in on Pritchard as a criminal in the early stages of the investigation. That resulted in investigators' dismissal of Pritchard's statement that the shooting was accidental, Puentes argued. 
There were so many attempts to get the defendant to give them their version of the truth because they just wouldn't accept his, Puente said. Iowa District Court Judge Mark Lawson set a sentencing hearing for March 22nd at the Jackson County Courthouse. A conviction of first-degree murder carries a mandatory life sentence in the state of Iowa. The next story is Dubuque Man Sentenced to 50 Years by Elizabeth Kelsey. A Dubuque man on Tuesday was sentenced to 50 years in prison after pleading guilty to second-degree murder for his role in a fatal shooting in Dubuque last year. Jermaine D. Bowles, 31, pleaded guilty Tuesday in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County to a charge of second-degree murder in the death of Lonnie E. Burns, 31, of Dubuque. Bowles initially was charged with first-degree murder, but pleaded guilty to the lesser-included charge. A charge of first-degree robbery was also dismissed. Iowa District Court Judge Monica Zrenel Ackley sentenced Bowles to 50 years in prison following the guilty plea. Iowa law requires that Bowles serve at least 70% of the sentence, or 35 years, before he is eligible for parole. He must also pay $150,000 in restitution to Burns' heirs. Bowles is the second person to be convicted in connection with Burns' death. Aaron Johnson, 25, of Chicago, in January, was sentenced to life in prison after a Dubuque jury found him guilty of first-degree murder and first-degree robbery in the case. Also charged in connection with the incident are Terry Valerie, 29, Tiara Goodwin, 17, and Kenneth Reed, 28. They all are charged with first-degree murder and first-degree robbery and have pleaded not guilty. Charges against a sixth individual were dismissed. On February 7, 2023, police found Burns lying on the ground in the 700 block of Romberg Avenue, unresponsive, with several gunshot wounds. He later was pronounced dead, and a jury last year determined that Johnson fired the fatal shots. Court documents state that police were told in interviews following the shooting that Burns messaged Goodwin, then 16, offering drugs and money in exchange for sexual favors. Police were told that Bowles discovered the messages. He told Godwin to continue messaging Burns and set him up. I want everything referring to drugs, Burns's drugs and cash documents state. Documents state that a group of people met February 6th at Bowles's 5th Street residence and a meeting was set up between Godwin and Burns. During Tuesday's hearing, Ackley asked Bowles, on February 7th, did you participate in the preparation of a plan to go with five under other individuals to Mr. Burns's residence? And Bowles replied, Yes, Your Honor. Was it your intention in going to Mr. Burns's residence to commit a robbery? Ackley asked. Yes, Your Honor, Bowles said. According to documents, traffic camera footage shows the group of individuals charged in the case approaching Burns's Romberg residence early February 7th. On the camera footage, Burns is seen engaging with the group on the sidewalk for a few moments before Johnson raises a gun in his direction. A short physical altercation followed, footage shows, and shots were fired in Burns's direction. Bolds said on Tuesday during questioning by Ackley that he did not believe Burns had a weapon the night of the incident and that there was no justification of self-defense for the altercation. Bolts did not make any statements at the hearing beyond answering Ackley's questions, nor did his attorney, Rhea Dim Dimitrova. 
Dubuque County Attorney Scott Nelson noted at the hearing that the plea had been discussed with Burns's family. Mia and Tia Burns, Lonnie Burns's sisters, appeared in Tuesday's hearing via video, but neither made a statement. Nelson said the family had already made their views known during victim impact statements at Johnson's sentencing and did not wish to speak again Tuesday. On behalf of the family, I just want to say that I am grateful that you acknowledged your role and responsibility in this, Ackley said to Bolds. I know Mr. Johnson was the actual shooter, but Mr. Bolds played an integral part in putting the whole thing together. Scott Nelson, Dubuque County attorney, stressed that the family went through a great emotional distress watching Johnson at the trial, so I appreciate that fact. After the hearing, Nelson said he felt justice had been served in the case and said both the sentence and the plea were appropriate. Mr. Johnson was the actual shooter, but Mr. Bolds played an integral part in putting the whole thing together, Nelson said. He had no intention of this happening, but he was there, so he has less culpability. Yet he did it, put it all together and engineered it, and so he ends up with a second-degree murder charge. Nelson noted others charged in the case are even less culpable and said attorneys still are determining the outcomes of their cases. That's something we'll decide after discussion with law enforcement and the family and come up with a solution for them, he said. You had six people involved here, all of whom had different levels of culpability. Now we have to address each one individually based upon their involvement in the whole thing. Dimitrova declined to comment after the hearing. The last story from the front page is Iowa Legislators Put Electric Rates Under Microscope by Benjamin Fisher. Both chambers of the Iowa Legislature on Tuesday advanced versions of bills that would reform the way the state's regulated electric utilities pursue rate increases through the Iowa Utilities Board. Both bills, which have bipartisan support stem from a report ordered by the legislature last year into whether the Iowa Utility Board's current processes are best for ratepayers as the state's electrical grid transitions to more renewable and alternative sources of energy. The bills center on a form of utility rate-making called integrated resource planning, used in many other states that requires utilities to provide more information about the costs and benefits of proposed rate changes along with the projects necessitating them. Area lawmakers Iowa Representative Shannon Lundgren, Republican of Piasta, and Iowa Senator Mike Klimish, Republican of Spillville, managed their chamber's bills. Lundgren, on the House of Representatives Commerce Committee, are she chairs, and Klimish on a subcommittee of the Senate Commerce Committee. Since we hadn't taken a look under the hood in 20 years in Iowa's regulatory environment regarding energy, we wanted to see that there's not things we could improve on, Klimish told attendees at his subcommittee's meeting. Representatives of the state's utilities, including Alliant Energy, raised concerns about the increased regulatory costs and delays they said could stem from the bill's implementation and a chance it would rush utilities to transition to other energy sources faster than they have the capacity to do. The Senate bill would require utilities to develop an integrated resource plan laying out long-term plans and potential sources of rate increases within one year of the bill's enactment. 
Those plans would be subject to contested case proceedings, allowing the public to give input into Iowa Utilities Board decisions on whether to approve them. Utilities would have to update their plan every three years. The cornerstones of the proposals from last year's report is integrated resource planning, Klimish said. I understand the utilities' concerns over contested case proceedings, but if I were to stand up today and say, I will exclude all coal-powered plants from integrated resource planning, would that satisfy everyone? I doubt it. Those are the conversations we need to continue to have. The House bill lacks the Senate bill's firm requirement of integrated resource plans. Its language expresses roughly the same intent as the Senate's bill, but authorizes the Utilities Board to specify rate-making principles required of utilities seeking new rates. Since the Iowa Utilities Board expressed a need for the kind of information provided by utilities through integrated resource plans, though, the Board would be expected to implement them. The House bill also proposes the promotion of nuclear power development when reasonable. The Utilities Board can ask for integrated resource planning now, but there's nothing statutorily that says it, so they get pushback from utilities, Lundgren told the Telegraph Herald. By adding that, it gives us a better picture of things like wind and solar and battery storage, things we're building out. We produce a lot of wind energy in the state of Iowa and sell a lot of wind energy. So if we're to build more wind energy, we need to see what the benefit is to Iowa's ratepayers because it costs us as ratepayers to build out those new technologies. During the Senate subcommittee, Alliant Energy Manager of Public Affairs, Ted Stopolis, shared some concerns he was, he was eager to discuss as the bill moves forward. We do planning. We do pro-planning, he said. We're interested in working with the committee on how an IRP could look in this state. We do harbor the same concerns about it being a contested case. Utilities representatives also raised concerns that the integrated resource planning process could increase costs for utilities and therefore ratepayers. Clemish questioned that but said he would consider any evidence provided. I'm not seeing that proved out in states that surround us that have IRP, though, he said. If I look at average prices in 2023 across 50 states, I see Nebraska, North Dakota, states that have aggressive IRP processes that haven't seen higher costs. No area Democrats served on the group considering the bill in their chamber Tuesday. But some Democrats voted in favor of the bills and complemented the process by which they were developed. Lundgren told the Telegraph Herald that she was grateful for this bipartisan cooperation she had in the House Commerce Committee and said her goal was to keep the proposed change from being too sudden. We want to make sure that anything we do in the end provides reliability and sustainability for Iowa ratepayers and that we don't have a huge impact on the backs of ratepayers. So we're taking it incrementally, she said. But the most important thing is that we're moving the ball forward. I don't want us to do this study and then do nothing with it. Now turning to page two, Dubuque and Tri-State, the story at the top of the page is Dubuque couple happily married after baby-related wedding postponement by Maya Bond. When Aaron and Kyle Haber of Dubuque set their wedding date for September 15, 2023, they couldn't have predicted their plans would be derailed in an instant. 
That derailment included a 78-day stint in a children's hospital that pushed their wedding back several months and put them among Dubuque's early 2024 newlyweds. Just weeks before their wedding and pregnant with twins, Aaron, 29, went into labor right after giving a maid-of-honor speech at a friend's wedding. I went to the hospital, and that is when they told me I was two centimeters dilated and I would have to be ambulance to Iowa City, she said. It was at University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital where Aaron gave birth to twin daughters, Stella and Noah, three months early via an an emergency C-section. Instead of getting married according to their schedule, Aaron and Kyle, 29, stayed in the Ronald McDonald House in Iowa City while their girls spent nearly three months in the hospital. Aaron said the girls are doing great now, despite being born so prematurely. Kyle said he is thankful there were no setbacks after the girls were born, and they hit their benchmarks every step of the way to prepare for their release date from the hospital in December. Aaron said Kyle has made motherhood much easier by being present and helpful with the girls. She said it was a difficult time and a real test of their relationship, but it showed her they are meant to be together. Aaron said throughout the three-month hospital stay and beyond, Kyle used humor to make her smile and at times forget their difficult situation for a moment or two. We're best friends, so it was easy from my end having somebody so easy to talk with with similar interests. That really helped the time go faster, Kyle said. After missing their scheduled wedding date, the two opted for a small get-together with their closest friends and family and were finally wed on January 1, 2024. Aaron joked that their daughters arrived early because they wanted to be a part of their parents' wedding. It's been so quick it has flown by, Aaron said of their first month of marriage. She said the two met about three years ago on the dating app Tinder. She was nervous to go alone to meet a man she met online, so with her best friend in tow, Erin agreed to meet Kyle at Lot 1 in Dubuque. Naturally, she ran into a few friends and a cousin, so Kyle was greeted by a table full of Erin's friends on their first date. He came into an ambush, and he was not expecting that, but he passed the test right away. It didn't bother him, Erin said. Kyle remembers the date similarly, and said Aaron's friends were sizing him up. Fortunately, Kyle remembers it went well. The two remained friends for a few months, as Aaron had just gotten out of a long-term relationship and didn't want to jump back into another one right away. But Kyle was persistent, she said, and after a few months, Aaron asked him out to a dinner at Little Tokyo in Galena, Illinois, for their first official date. The next story is titled, St. Mark Youth Enrichment, to sell building by Elizabeth Kelsey. After more than 35 years, a Dubuque nonprofit serving area students will sell its original building. Officials with St. Mark Youth Enrichment said the sale of the facility at 1201 Locust Street will help the organization direct more resources toward youth programs and advance its efforts to open an early childhood center. Executive Director Don Cogan said the nonprofit has called the Locust Street Building home since 1988 when St. Mark Lutheran Church disbanded its congregation and launched what then was called St. Mark Community Center. 
Starting with a group of 13 children who met once weekly, St. Mark Youth Enrichment now serves hundreds of students through its after-school and summer programs across Dubuque County. The group also provides school supplies for more than 3,000 local students through its annual Apples for Students initiative. In recent years, St. Mark has used the Locust Street building almost exclusively for administrative and office space, with programs taking place at partner organizations such as Boys and Girls Club of Greater Dubuque, St. John's Episcopal Church, Western Dubuque Community School District facilities, and others. Therefore, Coggins said, the sale of the building will not displace or impact any of St. Mark programs. We initially used the upstairs rooms for the church and basement for classrooms, and as we continued to grow to serve more children, we brought on more team members, so we've had to allocate that space for offices instead of programming space, said Kogan. Beth McGorry, Director of Donor Relations, said selling the building means St. Mark can direct more funds to programming rather than putting it into upkeep of a historic building. A part of making sure that we have the best space for our kids, selling this building really gives us the advantage to continue to grow our mission, she said. The move also helps the organization advance its plans to open an early childhood center set to be housed at area residential care in Dubuque. McGorry said the organization plans to serve 40 children from infancy through the age of five at the center, which they hope to open by September 2025. St. Mark has set a fundraising goal of $1.5 million for the project. According to Kogan, the organization is about halfway to that goal, including a $125,000 grant from the DRA in 2022 that has helped cover architectural and professional development costs and also will fund materials such as cribs, mats, and bookshelves. Kogan said most of the 14 staff members who work out of the Locust Street building temporarily will relocate to Sedona Staffing, a community partner of St. Mark. Several others will work remotely or in a hybrid format. Eventually, St. Mark hopes to establish its own facility with space to offer outdoor programming, a long-term vision for which Kogan said officials already are planning. Our goal is to someday have our own land where we can do after-school programs, summer programs, and early childhood and allow the kids to put their feet in the grass and into the dirt and really be a part of nature, McGorry said. Now the news in brief column. Reynolds requests disaster declaration for area counties record snowfall. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds on Tuesday requested a presidential disaster declaration covering multiple local counties following a period of record-breaking snowfall last month. Reynolds asked for funding under the Federal Emergency Management Agency's Public Assistance Program for an 18-county area that includes Delaware, Dubuque, and Jones counties. A press release states, The the request covers the significant record-breaking snowfall that happened between January 8th and January 14th. Funding from the Public Assistance Program can be used to recoup costs related to snow removal, de-icing, salting, sanding of roads and other eligible facilities, and other emergency protective measures, including but not limited to search and rescue and sheltering, the release states. Officials estimate that the January winter storms resulted in more than $8 million in damage 
that could be eligible for the program. Bellevue School Board accepts bid for elementary school. Dateline Bellevue, Iowa. Bellevue Community School District leaders have approved a bid for construction of the district's new elementary school. At its regular meeting this week, the school board accepted an $11.82 million bid from Tricon Construction Group for the new Bellevue Elementary School, which will be constructed on the Bellevue Middle and High School campus. Voters approved a $13.1 million bond measure in March of 2023 to fund construction of the school, which initially will house 3rd through 5th grades. Pre-kindergarten through 2nd grades will remain at the current school. Superintendent Tom Meyer said Tricon Construction's bid was one of the five bids and was the lowest bid that met the requirements and specifications of the project. According to Meyer, the project is slated for substantial completion by June 15, 2025, with final completion by June 30th of that year. The new school's design will allow for possible future expansion for pre-K to second grade students, which could be included as part of the second phase of renovations. That second phase also could include improvements to the high school's fine arts and career and technical education spaces and other facilities projects and would be funded using 1% sales tax revenue. And the police column. The Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Departments reported the following. Selena C. Marshall, 57, of Oxford Junction, Iowa, was arrested at 8.15 p.m. Monday in Zwingle, Iowa, on a warrant charging second-degree harassment. Brett M. Bisping, 23, of 2924 Brunswick Street, was arrested at 6.15 p.m. Monday at Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on a warrant charging third offense operating while intoxicated and driving while barred. Giovanni T. Murphy, 32, of 103 East 26th Street, was arrested at 5.30 p.m. Monday at his residence on charges of domestic assault with strangulation and child endangerment. Amber N. Pillard, 41, of Davenport, Iowa, was arrested at 1.50 p.m. Monday at Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on warrants charging two counts of third-degree theft and two counts of failure to appear. A burglary resulting in the theft of items worth $500 was reported at 8.47 p.m. Monday in the 1900 block of University Avenue. The theft of items worth $1,000 was reported at 12.01 a.m. Monday in the 2600 block of Dodge Street. The theft of items worth $1,500 was reported at 3.59 p.m. Sunday in the 600 block of West Locust Street. The theft of items worth $1,800 was reported at 1.39 p.m. Saturday in the 3100 block of Dodge Street. Criminal damage of $500 to a vehicle was reported at 7.20 p.m. Friday in the 1700 block of White Street. And the theft of a vehicle worth $3,000 was reported at 1.19 a.m. Friday in the 500 block of Loris Boulevard. You are listening to a reading of the Telegraph Herald on Wednesday, February 14th, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Tim A. Biederman, 68, of Dubuque, passed away on February 7th, 2024, after a courageous and heroic battle with pancreatic cancer. 
For five and a half years, Tim gave cancer the fight of its life. He battled with such ferocity, strength, and grace. His unwavering determination and relentless effort allowed him to defy all odds on his journey to slay the dragon. Visitation will be from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Saturday, February 17, 2024, at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. A funeral service will be held at 12 p.m. with Dr. Steve Garner officiating. Burial will be at a later date at Dubuque Memorial Gardens. Online condolences may be left at leonardfuneralhome.com. Becky A. Bush Kosharek, Dickieville, Wisconsin. Becky A. Bush Kosharek, 55, of Dickieville, Wisconsin, passed away Sunday, February 11, 2024, surrounded by her loving family. A massive Christian burial will be held at 3 p.m. Saturday, February 17, 2024, at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Dickieville, Wisconsin, with the Reverend Randy Timmerman officiating. Burial will be in the church cemetery. Visitation will be from 1 to 2.45 p.m. Saturday at the church prior to the service. Casey McNett Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Cuba City is serving the family. Nancy M. Lesline. Nancy M. Lesline, 68, of Dubuque, Iowa, died at home after a long battle with cancer on Monday, February 12, 2024. A private memorial service will be held at a later date with burial at Linwood Cemetery. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory is assisting the family. Nancy was born on January 30, 1956, in Dubuque to Charles and Rudy Oldner Ansel. She worked as a CNA in the Dubuque area for 30 years. Steve S. Sprague Stephen Samuel Sprague, 53, of Dubuque, Iowa, finished his final race on February 11, 2024. He crossed the finish line proudly, receiving his gold medal in heaven to be held in God's arms and be with Mutter and Les forever. His brother Randy, along with his best friends and buddies, Brewster Boy, Bruno, and Panda, were by his side. And yes, of course, his camera, too. Visitation will be on February 18, 2024, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, Dubuque, Iowa. A celebration of Stephen's life will begin at 3 p.m. with Deacon David Roth officiating. A private burial will be held at Mount Calvary Cemetery at a later date. Joseph L. Wachtel, Wausau, Wisconsin. Joseph Lawrence Wachtel, officially known as Grandpa Chopper, passed away peacefully on the morning of January 12, 2024, at the age of 86. A celebration of life will be held at Sundown Mountain in Dubuque, Iowa, beginning at 12, March 9, 2024, in the South Lodge. All are welcome and can RSVP at the Facebook event. Joe Wachtel's Skillibration of Life. Online condolences and a full obituary may be expressed at petersonkramer.com. Lois A. Matarak, Cascade, Iowa. Lois A. Matarak, 88, of Cascade, died on Sunday, February 11, 2024. Visitation will be held from 2 to 7 p.m. Sunday, February 18th, at Rife Funeral Home in Cascade. Services will take place at 10.30 a.m. Monday, February 19th at St. Martin's Catholic Church in Cascade. Burial will be in St. Peter's Cemetery in Temple Hill. Thomas R. Roche, 
Friendship, Wisconsin. Thomas R. Roche, 63, of Friendship and formerly of Cassville, died on Sunday, February 11, 2024. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 15th at St. Charles Borromeo Catholic Church in Cassville, where a massive Christian burial will take place at 11 a.m. Friday, February 16th. Burial will be in the church cemetery. Melby Funeral Home and Crematory of Platteville is assisting the family. Greg A. Marcotte, Shellsburg, Wisconsin. Greg A. Marcotte, 44, of Shellsburg, died on Monday, February 12, 2024. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Howden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Cuba City is assisting the family. Now turning to the sports page, the headline is Cougars Survive in OT by Danny Miller. Dateline Cascade, Iowa. A masterpiece it was not. It was, however, another classic postseason thriller between bitter rivals. In her first game back after missing the previous six weeks with a stress strain in her femur, Josie Maternak knocked down the game-winning free throw with 33 seconds left in overtime as Class 2A number 11-ranked Cascade survived yet another postseason upset bid from Dyersville Beckman Catholic, 32-30, to in a 2A Region 4 quarterfinal contest on Tuesday at Cascade High School. The Trailblazers eliminated the Cougars in two of the past three postseasons, including last year in the regional semifinals. It was one of those things coming in where we were like, we can't let this repeat itself, said Maternak, who also st- stroked a clutch three-pointer with her team down five in the fourth qu- quarter. It definitely helped fuel us to keep fighting to the very end, knowing we didn't want this to happen again. Cascade defeated Beckman for the third time this season and for the second straight time in overtime, following last Tuesday's 43-38 win in extra time. The three matchups this season were decided by a combined nine points. Beckman plays us about as tough as anybody, Cascade coach Mike Sconza said. Their physicality, size, and athleticism bother us a lot. This is how it usually goes against Beckman. We're lucky to get them tonight and move on. Cascade, 15-6, and six, which will host Albernet on Friday in a Region 4 semifinal contest, was led by Addison Frake and Molly Rawlings, 12 points apiece, while Matternack had 8. The trio were the only Cougars to reach the scores book. Nicole Godkin and Kaylee Lehman had 9 points each, while Reese Osterhaus added 7 for Beckman, which closed its season at 8-15. and 15. Herky-jerky and disjointed throughout, baskets came at a premium in a game defined by early turnovers, missed shots, and loose balls. 27 of the 62 points scored came in the second quarter. The teams combined for just 10 points in the fourth quarter and overtime. Coach Skansa always tells us, hang around, hang around, Matternack said. Not our best game, but that's just what we have to do in a game like this. Cascade led 4-2 to two after a rugged first quarter that saw the teams combine for 14 turnovers. Frake, Cascade's only consistent scorer in the first half, scored 7 points in the second quarter. But Gedkin hit two three-pointers, and Osterhaus ha- and Lehman had four points apiece to give the Blazers a 17-16 to 16 halftime advantage. Godkin hit her third triple to briefly give Beckman a 27-22 lead at 146 of the third before Rowling 
answered with a one and one to cut the deficit to 27 to 25, heading to the fourth. Osterhaus's layup and a Lehman free throw put Beckman ahead 30 to 25, with five minutes and two seconds remaining. The Cougars were held without a fourth quarter basket until Matternack's three pointer at two minutes and 56 seconds cut it to 30 to 28. Rowling's short turnaround jumper at 151 led tied it at 30. Beckman had two chances in the final minute to take the lead, but failed to convert, while Cascade came up empty in its final possession of regulation. Scoreless until 33 seconds remained in overtime, Matternack hit one of two free throws to take a 31-30 to advantage. Rowling added another with six seconds left, and Beckman's final attempt came well after the buzzer. It really came down to our tempo at the end of the game, Sconza said. Beckman plays a lot like we do. Grind it out, grind it out. Luckily enough, we got the last little pinch to get a win. Now turning to boys prep basketball. Western Dubuque 71, Maquoketa 62. Western Dubuque rallies past Maquoketa by Tom Gregory. Dateline, Worth, Iowa. In order to notch its first win in the series since 2016, Maquoketa was going to have to deal with a talented, spirited, and tight-knit senior class from rival Western Dubuque, along with one eager sharpshooting freshman. Western Dubuque overcame a 10-point second-half deficit to close out the regular season on Tuesday with a thrilling 71-62 win over Maquoketa on senior night at Western Dubuque High School. W.D. freshman Braden Tanney hit two clutch shots in the fourth quarter to give the Bobcats a lead they would not relinquish. And Canyon Bright closed out a stellar regular season career with a game-high 32 points for the Bobcats. Western Dubuque won for the sixth straight time in the series and heads to the postseason with an 8-12 to record. That felt great, Tanny said. I just really look up to Bright. Watching him is my biggest motivation. I strive to be like him. Makokita, which fell to 13-8, and eight, jumped in front and controlled a high-scoring first quarter in which each team got a boost off its bench. The Cardinals missed their first shot of the game, but made six of their next seven from the field. Two three-pointers from Brant Bennis asked, staked Makokita to an early 13-4 to four lead. Tyler Scritch came in to score more than half of the Bobcats' points in the opening frame. The junior had nine points, including a three-pointer, to snap an 8-0 Maquoketa run to pull WD within 22-16 after one quarter. Both teams stayed hot to open the second period. Eli Lemke knocked down consecutive shots for Maquoketa, while WD senior Luke Callahan answered with two straight three-pointers. Bright, scoreless in the opening stanza, followed his own miss for his first five points of the game midway through the second. Then the six-foot-eight senior drilled a three to tie a three to tie the game at 29, as the Bobcats pounced on three straight Maquoketa turnovers. But Bennis put the Cardinals back in front with a pair of second-chance baskets in the final three minutes of the half as Maquoketa took a 36-31 to lead to the break. It's not how we wanted to start out senior night, Bright said. We got a good chewing at halftime and we clawed back in. Five different Cardinals scored in the third as Maquoketa ran the lead out to a double digits and took a 54-46 to lead in the fourth. But W.D. rallied. 
with a 6-0 run to start the third, and Bright asserting himself down low, the Bobcats kept chipping away at the lead. But it wasn't until Tanny's three-pointer, with 5 minutes and 12 seconds left in the game, one that gave the Bobcats a 57-56 to lead, that W.D.'s comeback seemed real. Tanny knocked down another shot on W.D.'s next trip to cap a 13-2 to run, and the Bobcats never looked back. We asked Tanny to step up, Pratt said. He was playing sophomore at the beginning of the season, and we said we needed him up to varsity. I've been hard on him in practice, but he's responded well. He stepped up and hit some big shots, and that's exactly what we need out of him. Now turning to boys prep bowling. Iowa State qualifying meets Patera and Western Dubuque to state by Jim Leitner. David Patera made quite the adjustment after a rough start to the Iowa Class 3A state bowling qualifier on Tuesday afternoon. Like the rest of his teammates, the freshman struggled in the first four games of the 15-game Baker Team Tournament at Kingpin Entertainment in Decorah, Iowa. But after the Bobcats rallied to finish second and qualify for state as a team, Patera rattled off a national honor count 236 to 56 to 24 for 715 to win the individual portion of the tournament. It means a lot to me to win this, and I hope to win it next week at state, said Patera, who averaged 195.92 during the regular season. At first, in Baker's, I wasn't doing too good, and at the end, I started to get hot. I just moved my feet a little bit and kept consistent on my mark, and that was the big difference. Patera rolled a season high in defeating Decorah senior Brock Christensen by 43 points. The top eight individuals and top two teams advanced to next week's state tournament in Waterloo. Western Dubuque senior Aiden Bessler finished in a tie for ninth place with a 165, 175, 268 for 608, just four pins away from qualifying for state. The Bobcats lineup also included Regan Merckx, 598, Ethan Potter, 597, Matthew Daly, 587, and Karsten Ball, 536. In the first five game set of the Baker tournament, the Bobcats shot a high game of just 189 to fall in the middle of the pack in the eight-team tournament. They began to come back with a 222 in game five and hit the 200 mark seven more times to finish with a runner-up score of 2,976. Decorah won the team title with a 3,294 points, while the Bobcats beat Waverly Shellrock by 156 pins to claim the second team spot for state. Western Dubuque advanced as a team for the 10th time in program history and first since 2022. It's pretty cool to be going back, especially for the guys who missed it by six pins last year, to a good Decorah team that won it this year. Western Dubuque coach Grant Gramer said, It's nice to be going back to Cadillac Lanes in Waterloo, where we feel a little more comfortable and try to keep it rolling. We started off that first five-game set pretty poorly, but every set after that, we improved dramatically. We kept fighting back, we kept climbing, and we got all the way up to second. Moving to a different pair of lanes gave the guys a little more confidence, and they kept their composure and knew they could play. Dubuque Hempstead's Alec Bowman and Dubuque Senior's Zach Wokel finished 6th and 7th in the 
Class 3A qualifying meet at Cadillac Lanes in Waterloo to advance to next week's state tournament. Bowman rolled a 221, a 253, and 200 for 674, while Walkel recorded a 234, 236, 195 for 665. Davenport Central's Darian Hellstrom shot a 199, 300, 236 for 735 to win the individual title by 24 pins over Cedar Falls' Chris Fordyce. Hempstead also competed with Nick Hingen, 629, David O'Dell, 643, Andrew Waters, 569, Gavin Wardle, 560, Ben Friesinger, 534. Seniors lineup included Cale Patters, 643, Hayden Hirsch, 618, Joseph Simpson, 560, Matt Poling, 547, and Gavin Parker at 544. Davenport Central won the team title with a 15-baker game count of 3,337, and Johnson landed the second state qualifying spot with a 3,223. Senior finished fourth at 2,878, and Hempstead took sixth at 2,832 in the 18th field. Host Comanche edged Monticello 2,972 to 2,912 to win a Class 1A qualifier and claim the lone team spot for state. Dubuque Wallert placed fourth while 2,579 and Bellevue took eighth with 2,088. Comanche's Garrett Reynolds won the individual title with a 698, 33 pins ahead of teammate David Hendricks. The top four individuals advanced to state, and Waller's lineup included Brevin Hawkinson, 613, Crew Meyer, 537, Pierce Oberfell, 534, Noah Mellon, 504, Maddox Waller, 497, and Oliver Meyer at 472. Bellevue's lineup included Colt Kundu at 585, Tate Giesemann at 473, Lance Borenpole at 457, Carter Michels 447, Carson Dierks 418, and Nolan Dunn at 241. Defending Class 1A state champion Makokita rolled a 3,198 to easily outdistance Western Delaware's runner-up 2,973 and grabbed the lone team qualifying spot for the new Hampton qualifier. West Delaware's Brady Hardy Hartke shot a 686 to edge Summer Fredericksburg's Carlos Sanchez, Sanchez by two pins for the individual crown. Makokita's Logan Klassen defeated teammate Charlie Hafner 672 to 663 for the fourth and final individual qualifying position. Makokita also bowled Jacob Reeks at 626, Landon Costello 566, Dalton Davis 555, and Logan Heaton. 492. West Delaware's lineup also included 8th place Ethan Sellers, 643, Louis Schantz at 612, John Wickman at 569, Jace Turnus at 543, and Hayden Tucker at 483. Now turning to On the Air today, UEFA Champions League Soccer at uh, Paris Saint-Germain versus Real Sociedad at 2 p.m. on CBS. Premier Lacrosse League, California Redwoods versus Boston Cannons at 4.30 p.m. 
p.m. on ESPN2. In men's college basketball, Michigan State at Penn State at 5.30 p.m. on BTN. Miami at Clemson at 6 p.m. at ESPN2. Northern Iowa at Valparaiso at 7 p.m. on ESPN+. Iowa at Maryland, 7.30 p.m. BTN. Tennessee at Arkansas, 8 p.m. ESPN2. And Utah State at Wyoming, 9 p.m. FS1. In women's college basketball, Nebraska at Ohio State at 6 p.m. on Peacock. Kansas State at Iowa State at 6.30 p.m. on ESPN+. Indiana at Wisconsin at 7 p.m. on Peacock. In NBA basketball, the Bulls at the Cavaliers at 6.30 p.m. on ESPN, as well as NBCSCHI, and Clippers at the Warriors at 9 p.m. on ESPN. In NHL hockey, the Panthers at the Penguins, 6.30 p.m. TNT and True TV, and the Wild at the Coyotes at 8.30 p.m., on BSWI. For the local calendar, today's events, Boys Prep Wrestling, Dubuque Hempstead, Dubuque Wallert, Western Dubuque at IHSAA State Tournament, Wells Fargo Arena, Des Moines at 9 a.m. In Women's College Basketball, Co. at Dubuque at 5.30 p.m. Loris at Luther at 5.30 p.m. Grandview at Clark at 5.30 p.m. UW Platteville at UW-Whitewater, 7 p.m. Men's College Basketball, UW-Whitewater at UW-Platteville, 7 p.m. Co. at Dubuque at 7.30 p.m. Loris at Luther at 7.30 p.m. Grandview at Clark at 7.30 p.m. And Girls Prep Basketball, Class 5A Regional First Round, Dubuque Senior at Dubuque-Hempstead at 7 p.m. Class 3A Regional Semifinal, Walk-On at Dubuque-Wallert at 7 p.m. And we'll finish off today with Boys Prep Basketball, the substate bracket set. A potential rematch for the right to go to state looms for Dubuque Senior with the release of the Iowa High School Athletic Association Class 3A and 4A Boys Basketball postseason pairings. Meanwhile, Dubuque Wallard and Western Dubuque will go head-to-head in an opening round contest. All postseason contests tip off at 7 p.m. The 4A, number 7th ranked Rams host either Davenport Central or Muscatine on February 23rd in a Substate 5 semifinal. Should senior advance, it would likely meet 9th ranked Pleasant Valley on February 27th. The Spartans denied the Rams a trip to state last year with a 54-51 win in a Substate championship. Dubuque Hempstead opens postseason play at Davenport North on February 19th in a 4A Substate 3 first round contest. The winner travels to number 2 Iowa City West on February 23rd. After splitting a pair of regular season games, Dubuque Wallard will host a rubber match with Western Dubuque when the teams square off in a 3A Substate 3 first round contest on February 19th. Western Dubuque beat Wallert 64-41 on December 8th before the Golden Eagles returned the favor 62-56 on February 2nd. The winner will meet either Western Delaware or 3A number 2 ranked Decorah on February 22nd. Maquoketa hosts Cedar Rapids Xavier on February 19th in a 3A substate 
four first round contest with the winner facing either number six ranked Marion or Fairfield in the semifinals. And that does it for today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls, since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. 
It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.